Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 89. Soldiers of Fate. The Astrology of Vettius Valens. Scholars of antiquity are used to some pretty rough dating, and listeners to The Schwepp thus far have come to expect statements like, we can date this thinker's birth to sometime in the first half of the second century, and that sort of vague talk. In this episode, we are pleased to be able for the first time to do much better than that. Vettius Valens, an astrologer from Antioch in Roman Syria, and the writer of the Anthologiae, or Anthologies, a very important practical manual of astrology which survives in the original Greek, was born on the 8th of February, 120 CE. In fact, we even know the date of his conception, the 13th of May, 119. His death is a little more of a mystery, but it will be sometime after the year 173. The reason we know all this is that Valens was a practicing astrologer, and his book contains some 125 horoscopes of actual people, including himself. Or at least we assume it's his own. He doesn't actually say it's his horoscope, but uh, scholars seem to have agreed that it is. The latest cited horoscope in his book is for the year 173 CE, which is why we know he died sometime after that. Actually, his book cites much later horoscopes as well, but these are additions by another hand, as we shall discuss shortly. Vetius Valens, or Wetius Valens in classical pronunciation, but we're just going to go with the regular V because it seems a bit forced otherwise. Vetius Valens is a Roman name, but of course he wrote in Greek as Wetius Wallis, presumably because he lived in Syria, which had Greek as its lingua franca, and also perhaps because Greek was simply the language for technical manuals in the Roman Empire, even in the West in some cases. His astrology is a striking contrast to that of Ptolemy, whom we discussed last time, on a number of levels, and we'll be discussing these in the course of this episode. And several scholars have argued that although Ptolemy went on to have a dominant position as the astronomical astrological authority par excellence, the kind of astrology represented by Valens, fatalist, practical, and following an arithmetical rather than a geometrical methodology, in fact represents a more mainstream Hellenistic approach. Although it's clear that Valens had his own ideas on many things, and it's also clear that the ancient astrological traditions were very diverse in general and there was a lot of debate going on, nevertheless it seems like Valens is kind of more like the kind of guy you'd go see if you went to see an astrologer than Ptolemy who is so theoretical. So Valens gives us a crucial glimpse of what actual practical astrology looked like in the second century. But he's also extremely relevant for later developments in astrological theory and practice. As we shall see at the end of this episode, his work remains crucial throughout the Middle Ages in the East Roman and Islamicate worlds, while Ptolemy dominates more in the Latinate realm once he's been translated into Latin from Arabic, as we saw last episode. So Valens's book is called The Anthologies, a long practical handbook, really a collection of writings on various topics, targeted at the professional astrologer. Ptolemy, as we saw last time, and other writers like Firmicus Maternus in the 4th century, present astrology in a more theoretical way, and perhaps in a way which is better suited for a generally well-educated person wishing to understand the theory and practice of astrology in a basic way. 
In Roman antiquity, this art seems to have formed, at least in some circles, part of the educational package of the well-rounded person with time for leisure studies. And this is the sort of person who would be drawn to a Maternus or a Ptolemy. Valens, on the other hand, is writing for a more hardcore audience. His book is what you'd want to study if you were setting up as a professional astrologer. It's dense, full of handy tables aimed at making calculations, and lacking to some degree in the social graces. Passages of a more literary style do occur throughout the work, but they're interlarded in a text which is largely stripped down and pretty utilitarian. Think of a modern university textbook in the exact sciences, which has little essays scattered throughout taking in a broader, more humanistic approach to the subject at hand, and you get somewhat of an idea of what the book is like. The book was something that Valens worked on for at least 20 years, and we can see this from the way in which he went back and rewrote earlier sections based on further information. This indicates that the work has a strong empirical element. Valens was constantly keeping an eye on the people whose horoscopes he'd interpreted to see how their fates worked out, and going back and adding relevant details to his schemes of prediction based on how things in fact happened. The book as we have it also has further layers added to it. The Table of Kings in Book 1 was continued into the 4th century by someone, and later material is also added even in the 5th century. This 5th century edition is the one to which our manuscripts go back. So really the Anthologiae as we have it is a collaborative work by a number of astrologers over several centuries, which makes it even more useful to scholars in some ways, while posing tangled problems of textual provenance in other respects. Um, and basically, we will never get back to the book that Vettius Valens himself published, because there's too much tampering going on with the text in intervening centuries. Now let's turn to the theory and practice of astrology as Valens lays it out in his book. Unlike Ptolemy's Tetrabiblos, but a bit more like Artemidorus's dream book, see episode 71, the anthologies are pretty unsystematic in their presentation and show the signs of long-term continual editing and rewriting. The textbook comparison I made above is actually misleading because no textbook could ever be this all over the place and still get published. This is more like the published working notes of a practicing astrologer. There is structure, but there are also lots of digressions and the structure clearly changes over time as he writes and rewrites. Books 1 and 2 lay out pretty standard Hellenistic astrological astronomical doctrine. The seven stars and their characters, the signs of the zodiac and theirs, the terms or hours, the doctrine of sect, where a given planet is on the day or the night team, so there's sort of two teams of planets, the influence of the houses and various oppositions and relations between planets, the trine, the square, and the sextile. Books three and four mainly deal with the chronocrator, the planetary ruler of a given period of time, how to determine which planet it is, and thus to determine what the ruling agency for that given bit of time is. Books six to nine, so the whole end of the book, mainly deal with calculating the length of life in various complex ways. Now let's get into the theory a bit here. Again contrasting Valens with Ptolemy, while each planet has its character, so people born under Saturn will have all kinds of personality problems, those born under Mars will be bellicose and so on and so forth, there isn't any physics being posited here. So 
With Ptolemy, Mars is hot and dry. With Valens, Mars is just Mars. He has martial characteristics. Ptolemy also posits a Catholicos approach, a universal astrology, what's often called mundane astrology. Valens deals solely with the fates of individual human beings. He doesn't do any of this kind of what is the fate of the entire world stuff. But the biggest difference between the two thinkers is that Valens is an old school, absolute fatal determinist. Now we've seen deterministic fatalism already in the podcast with Stoicism, in episode 45 especially. And Stoicism was actually in its heyday in the second century in the Roman Empire. A decent slice of the population in the Roman Empire, we don't know how big, but certainly a lot of intellectuals, subscribed to the Stoic way of life. And this meant that they thought they were part of a web of causes in which nothing was left out. Everything that happens, happens as it must, from the beginning of the universe until its end in a fiery cataclysm, at which point the whole thing repeats again in exactly the same way. Incidentally, Marcus Aurelius, the famous Stoic emperor, is a slightly younger contemporary to Vettius Valens. So he's an example of a Stoic in our period. There was also a large portion of the population, again, its exact size is impossible to determine, who held beliefs from Stoicism without being Stoics themselves or even necessarily knowing much about Stoicism. So Stoicism had been popular enough, just like Platonism, that certain of its beliefs had kind of seeped into the general uh, worldview of Roman ordinary folks. Belief in fate, fatum in Latin, hemarmene in Greek, was very widespread in this period. As the Roman historian Tacitus puts it in the first century, most men have no doubt that what happens to them is predestined from birth. So this testimony shows us that there, it's at least possible to believe that a belief in predestination from birth is a, is a widespread thing. In such a climate as scholars like Mark Riley and Chris Brennan have pointed out, the causal, but not exactly fatal, action of the stars we saw in Ptolemy's theory is in fact a minority opinion. We have a lot of evidence to suggest that, especially among ancient astrologers, belief in absolute predestination of events was commonplace. This will all change, of course, with the rise of Christianity, which has already begun in the second century, but it hasn't gotten very far yet. Now, astrology isn't Stoicism, but what's interesting about Valens is that A, there are many recognizably Stoic aspects to his theory of fate, so scholars will often discuss this or that element of Valens' thought as being Stoic, and B, he sees astrology not so much as a pursuit or even a science, but as a way of life with the potential to free human beings, not from fate, of course, but from the suffering which comes from trying to oppose fate. Astrology for Valens has pretty much the same philosophic goal as Stoicism, in other words, freeing humanity from unnecessary suffering by putting them in harmony with their fate. The astrologer facing life is like the slave of a harsh master, as Valens tells us. Like a good slave, he doesn't contest his master's wishes, and thus he avoids difficulties. This is a very stoic thought. We do our duty above all, and if our lot in life makes us a slave, our duty is to be the best slave that we can. So how 
Is the astrologer better off than any other slave of fate? Valens says, quote, Those who have trained themselves in the prognostic art and in the truth keep their minds free and out of bondage. They despise fortune, do not persist in hope, do not fear death, and live undisturbed. They are alien to all pleasure and flattery and stand firm as soldiers of fate. End of quote. So no one can escape fate, but astrology prepares us to deal with the blows of fate in the proper way, with resolve and unruffled calm. And there's a kind of accompanying scorning of the material and um, social benefits that some uneducated men see as worthy because the astrologer knows better than most just how fickle these uh, benefits, these seeming benefits are. Basically, this is a version of the you-can-deal-with-stuff-better-when-you-see-it-coming argument, also found in Ptolemy, but this is put in a non-Ptolemaic, fully fatalist context. Unlike Ptolemy's vision, Vettius's astrology leaves no room for a medical side to astrology. We can't use astrology, for example, to find cures for plagues or otherwise mitigate the blows of fate. We can only learn to accept them with philosophic coolness, or not. There are other signs in Valens's book of a very stoical ethic for life. The astrologer is ascetic. He scorns riches and fame, as we've mentioned, although very clearly one of the main points of astrological consultation was to find out, will I be rich? So that's a bit of a problem. And the astrologer is generally above the fluctuating rock of common humanity, serene in his knowledge of the stars, which are gods, and which are absolute signs of what is to come. It's only a question of determining what they are saying. Valens can tell the exact hour in which someone will die from their birth chart and how they will die. All of this is predetermined. Now let's quote a little bit from the Anthologiae to get a better idea of the kind of theoretical world we're dealing with. Valens has given a long passage describing the fickle but absolute rule of fate, along with these two self-begotten gods who work for fate. They're like the servants of fate, hope and fortune, who, quote, control man's life and make him bear fate's decrees by using their compulsion and deception. <laughs> so in this description, fate, hope, and fortune are all sort of deified abstractions, but they're kind of hostile or at least fickle and um, potentially very harsh to human life. Now, this reference to hope may well refer back to Stoic exegesis of the myth of Pandora and the general Stoic rejection of hope. In the post-Christian world, hope is usually seen as a good thing, right? Never give up. Where there's life, there's hope, and so on. But the Stoics saw it as a moral flaw in humanity. The Stoics are aiming at non-attachment to results and non-attachment to anything which is outside of one's control. So hope is sort of the opposite of that. The exegesis that the Stoics gave of the myth of Pandora, which appears in Hesiod, you all know the story. Pandora is given a jar full of evils by the gods, and she's told not to open it. But being a woman and thus plagued with curiosity, which is a well-known trait of the female sex, she can't resist 
and she opens the jar and immediately fly out all the kind of horrible moral failures that typify humanity avarice greed lust sloth all this sort of thing and she goes no and slams the lid back on the jar but then lurking in the bottom of the jar is one last thing hope and hope comes out and in the original seeming meaning of the myth hope is this thing that sort of redeems us we we suffer from all these failings but we still hold out hope that we might improve the way the stoics read this was against the grain they thought hope was the worst of the lot and in fact what we need to do is accept the lot that we as humans have accept all the moral failings and vices that have come out of this jar as the providential ordering of reality and get on with being virtuous now vetius's take on hope whether or not it is a direct reference to this stoic exegesis or not is definitely reading hope in the same kind of vein now as we discussed last time astrology either is or isn't esoteric depending on when where and by whom it's being propounded vetius valens however is refreshingly full of the rhetorics of public secrecy it is esoteric in the fullest sense his book is interspersed with adjurations where valens tells his reader now this is sometimes addressed to a man called marcus perhaps one of his students but sometimes just to the reader or readers to keep the matters discussed in the book secret they are in fact mysteries with all the cultural baggage of public secrecy and initiatory elitism that that trope implied so let's read a passage from book four quote i adjure you my most precious brother and you initiates into this mystic art by the starry vault of heaven and by the twelvefold circle by the sun the moon and the five wandering stars by whom all life is guided and by providence itself and holy fate to preserve these matters in secret and not to share them with the vulgar but only with those worthy of them and able to preserve and requite them as they deserve i adjure you to bestow on me valens your guide eternal and noble fame particularly since you're aware that i alone ungrudgingly illuminated this part of the truth which had never before been explicated by anyone do not put aside my name and attach another's to this compendium do not blot out any of what has been or will be written here with the result of nullifying my reader's efforts and of bringing discredit on me end of quote so multi-layered esotericism here we have a strong evocation first of all of the mysteries the reader is valens's precious brother probably meant as an initiatory brotherhood rather than a literal brother and the whole divine mechanics which runs the universe the celestial bodies and also fate fate incidentally which is now holy although as we saw earlier it can also be considered vain and troublesome and arbitrary all of these powers are called on to enforce what well that the readers both keep the matters discussed in the book secret but also make sure that valens gets proper credit for them here's another adjuration from book seven this is heavy stuff now quote i adjure them by the sacred circle of the sun by the varied paths of the moon by the powers of the five other stars and by the circle of the twelve signs to keep these matters secret never to share them with the ignorant or the uninitiated and to remember and to honor the one who inducted them into this art 
May it go well for those who keep this oath, and may the aforesaid gods grant them what they wish. May the opposite happen to those who forswear this oath. Now, Valens is cursing anyone who reveals the contents of his book to the uninitiated. How a curse is supposed to work in Valens's world, where fate is implacable and utterly indifferent to petty human concerns, is a tough one to figure out, and it's beyond me. But we have a curse, by the stars and the zodiac themselves, on anyone who messes around with the esoteric material, and who forgets to big up their teacher, Vettius Valens. So just to be safe, let me take a moment here to just say how great Vettius Valens is, and how wonderful his work is, and how we should all give him credit for it. Now this is esotericism as trade secret, to some degree, as we saw with our early alchemical tradition a few episodes ago. These matters should not be spread about to just anyone, and there must certainly be a certain degree to which this is due to the professional concerns of a practicing astrologer who wants to make sure practicing astrologers continue to pursue a viable career path. It's also esotericism intertwined with self-promotion, which is an interesting twist that we haven't seen too much of in the podcast so far, although it's not totally unfamiliar. And this is astrology as initiatic art. Astrologers don't just know something, they are initiated into something and become a different sort of person, part of the elite through their initiation. Heady stuff. While we're on the subject of esotericism, we should mention lineage. Among the authorities cited by Valens, by the way, we find Zoroaster and Abraham, two religious figures who also apparently wrote astrological works. We find Meton of Athens, he of the famous Metonic Cycle, and Hipparchus and many other important Hellenistic astronomers. There's a lot of straight-up science in Valens. We find Thrasyllus, our old friend from episode 66, and many, many more. Valens, he cites a whole range of earlier astrological authorities, sometimes quite critically on technical matters. Their way of determining the ascendant is wrong, this sort of thing. But sometimes on grounds that they express themselves too obscurely, a charge he brings against the great Nechepso and Petosiris, seminal figures of the Hellenistic tradition, whom we met back in episodes 41 and 42. Now, all of this is interesting because he counters their obscurity, he says, their books are hard to understand, they're obscure, they're rubbish, with his own exposition, which he thinks is clear and systematic. He's frustrated, in fact, with what was probably, at least in part, intentional esotericism in some of his predecessors. So they were expressing themselves in oblique ways on purpose to hide their meaning from, well, the uninitiated. And yet he wants to maintain an esoteric initiatic exclusivity to his own work, despite the fact that it is expressed, as he sees it, in clear and straightforward fashion. So his relationship with his predecessors and with the astrological tradition more generally is a very interesting and multi-leveled one. We don't see in Valence, however, a real building of esoteric lineage as we've seen in so many of our authors surveyed in the podcast. He cites authorities all the time, and sometimes he even preserves earlier lost astrological writings for us in fragments that we wouldn't otherwise have, so he's a great source for the earlier Hellenistic tradition. But at no point does he make himself out to be in the lineage of so-and-so. Rather, he presents himself as an innovator, this can happen in esoteric traditions. Paracelsus will be a great example of this in the 15th century. And that's 
a healthy reminder to us that not all esoteric thinkers speak in terms of lineage and transmission from teacher to student or perennial wisdom or any of these kind of ideas. Sometimes they say, I'm the business, I'm coming up with the truth, here it is, and so on. Valens is clearly involved in raging debates over astrological practice among his contemporaries as well, and often has very harsh things to say about his contemporaries. Now, when we cover Zosimus of Panopolis, the great alchemist of the 4th century, we're going to see something similar. He's also slagging off contemporary alchemists on grounds of theory and practice and saying, they're wrong and I'm right. So these fragments of debate in the case of astrology show us just how diverse and contested the field of astrological practice was in the 2nd century, as do the many contrasts which we can draw between Ptolemy and Valens, as we've been doing in this episode so far. It, it's clear to us, although we don't have so much of this literature anymore, that it was an incredibly diverse and speculative field, and people were disagreeing with each other all the time on how you were supposed to do astrology. So last but not least, let's turn to the afterlife of Valens's work. It was a very long and very important afterlife, actually. His work was continued after his death until late antiquity by astrologers unknown, as we've already seen. So at least until the 5th century, people were taking the time to um, add to the tables and perhaps to other parts of the book. But we also have evidence that his handbook was popular and influential right through the East Roman Middle Ages. See David Pingree's article on Valens in Byzantium for more on this. Indeed, our Greek manuscripts of this book are from the late Middle Ages, from an East Roman context, and clearly there was a long copying tradition going on between late antiquity and then, which means people were reading and using Valens presumably throughout the Middle Ages. In this uh, later tradition in the East Roman context, lore accretes around Valens, and he becomes a kind of sage of the astrological tradition. He's said to have cast the horoscope of the city of Constantinople herself. Constantinople, of course, in Valens's day was not a particularly important city, but came to be the absolute linchpin of Roman power in the Middle Ages. In the Arabic tradition, under the name Walis, Valens had an even more colorful life. He was, for example, present when the Persian king was under attack by the armies of the approaching Muslims in the 7th century. He tells the great king of Persia that it's the prophet Muhammad who's coming, which he knows about through his astrological wisdom, of course, and the king has him thrown into prison in anger, but Wallis is saved by Allah's mercy. He has many other adventures as well. In works like the Fihrist of Ibn al-Nadim, he features as an astrological sage of the first water. See Fuat Sezgin's book, mentioned in the bibliography to this episode, for more on Wallis who was important enough to be made to live an extra 400 years so as to be present for the coming of Islam to the late antique world, and we'll return to Walis when the time comes in the podcast. Indeed, we'll encounter the long future of Valens quite a bit as we move forward in time, but for now, we shall say farewell. This brings us to the end of a five-episode series on the technical esoteric arts, alchemy, arithmology, and astrology, as they developed in the second century. Especially in the case of astrology, we have not exhausted the subject, not even close, but we've at least covered perhaps the two most essential astrologies of the period going forward, Ptolemy and Valens, and given some idea of the state of play, in theory at least, if not in practice. 
other important writers on astrology whose works survive, notably Hephaestion of Thebes and Dorotheus of Sidon, are not going to be covered in the podcast in any detail, but we can mention here that their works are more similar on balance to Valens than they are to Ptolemy. That is, they are fatalist astrologers, and this was seemingly the mainstream position, broadly speaking, and they worked within a more arithmetical uh, methodology than the kind of theoretical geometric approach that we find in Ptolemy. But it is now time for the podcast to return to the realm of metaphysics once again, and indeed to the realm of esoteric Christianity, as we turn to Clement of Alexandria, our most fascinating early Christian esotericist who wasn't declared a heretic, but who, like Origen of Alexandria after him, would inject an esoteric element into the DNA of proto-orthodoxy, which would continue popping up in the churches until the present day. Until then, stay esoteric and stay well, or as Vettius Valens puts it, May the previously mentioned gods be well disposed to those who guard these things, may their lives be prosperous, and may the consummation of their plans be as they wish. Mm -hmm.